0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Wednesdays with Wesley. My name is Bob Kaler, and this podcast is going to be a deep dive into the writings and sermons and history and practices of the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because we had a very successful study of John Wesley sermons here at my church, Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado, back in the fall of 2020. And I wanted to be able to bring that kind of study to a wider audience. There's a lot to look at in John Wesley's sermons, and most Methodists have not really read them, even though they're part of our doctrinal standards. And so I wanted to have an opportunity for us to look at each of these sermons and also invite some of my friends who are Wesley scholars to come in and join me as we discuss these sermons and their importance, not only for early Methodism, but especially for Methodism today, and particularly in a time when we are looking at the possibility of starting a new Methodist movement uh, out of the United Methodist Church here in the near future. But regardless of whether you are part of that movement or whether you remain in the United Methodist Church or whether you are a free Methodist or a Wesleyan or a Nazarene or anyone else who's part of the larger Methodist family, I think this deep dive into Wesley will help you to actually read his sermons and understand the distinctiveness of Wesleyan theology and practice for the 21st century. As I have read through John Wesley's sermons, I have found them to be not only stimulating theologically and and also uh, powerful doctrinally, but also personally enriching and helping me to understand how to be a better Christian and how to be uh, the kind of Christian who has hope for this world, not just hope for The world to come. It's about transformation and about new life in this world and in this life. So I hope you'll want to dive in with me as we read through these sermons. And there are a number of reasons why we want to read Wesley's sermons for the 21st century. First of all, I think because they're included in most of our doctrinal standards, if you look at the United Methodist Book of Discipline, for example, You'll notice that this is part of our theological task, part of our uh, restrictive rule, that John Wesley's sermons will be part of that, along with his explanatory notes on the New Testament. And yet many clergy, and and likely most laypeople, have never really interacted with them directly, never really given them a good, solid read, or had someone to guide them in reading them. Uh, I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, and while I was there, Dr. Ken Kinghorn, uh, who was one of our Methodist scholars, translated, in in effect, John Wesley's sermons into uh, modern English. But even then, most people have not read them directly. What we tend to see people reading out of John Wesley are snippets and pieces and parts. And oftentimes, those little pieces and parts are taken out of context. As Ben Witherington loves to say, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to say. And that's true not only for the Bible, I think it's also true for John Wesley's sermons. For example, one of the things that gets quoted about Wesley a lot is a line from his sermon on Catholic spirit, though we can't think alike, can we not love alike? It's a powerful sentiment. It's a way of getting past disagreement. But a lot of times that's been interpreted as Wesley saying something like, well, uh, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as we love alike. You can kind of go off in theological speculation. It doesn't really matter. We're all bound together by this mutual kind of love, whatever you define love as. But if you read that sermon in context— Wesley is talking about being centered on the things that really matter, the center and core of Christian doctrine and faith. So, for example, later on in the sermon, he says a Catholic spirit is not speculative latitudinarianism, uh, which is a great word, but it's really not speculation and having latitude to do whatever you want with the scriptures and with Christian doctrine, It's not an indifference to all opinions, he says. In fact, he says, this is the spawn of hell, not the offspring of heaven. And so many Methodists have only received a caricature of Wesleyan theology in practice rather than the real thing. I didn't grow up Methodist. I grew up in uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church in America, where we were very big on doctrine. I like to joke that it was Shiite Presbyterian because we were very serious about learning doctrine. In fact, in ninth grade, we had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism as part of our confirmation process. And not only did we have to memorize it, we had to stand in front of the session, the elders of the church, and not only, uh, recite the answers to the questions in the catechism, but also explain them in our own words. We took doctrine very seriously. We took Scripture very seriously, and for that, I'm very, very grateful. I'm very grateful for the church that I grew up in. One of the things I've discovered, though, being a Methodist preacher and being in Methodist churches for almost 30 years, is that many Methodists were never really catechized or taught about their doctrine, about John Wesley's sermons, about the distinctiveness of Methodism. And I've discovered this over the years as we have done new member classes and people who are lifelong Methodists, when we teach them this stuff, they kind of say, man, I I had no idea that we believed and that this was part of our, our doctrinal heritage and indeed our doctrinal orientation today. So I think it's really important for us to look at The writings of John Wesley, to look at him in his own words, to look at him in context. And that's what this podcast is going to be about. Each Wednesday, we're going to take one of John Wesley's sermons and we're going to break it down, which we're going to do by inviting you to read them in advance or read them even after you've listened to each episode of the podcast. That'll be an opportunity for you to. Read Wesley in his own words, but then here's some commentary from myself, uh, from some guests that I want to bring on board. Over the years, I've had a chance to get connected with a lot of Methodist scholars, in particular, some young Methodist scholars and others who I think can bring insight into John Wesley. And what I discovered when we did this with our church last fall was that there was a real hunger to want to learn more, that people really wanted to dive deeper, and they were fascinated and excited about Wesleyan theology. And if that's what this podcast brings, that's going to be a success in my view. So I hope you'll join with me as we go through Wesley's sermons. They're going to be very, very important For us in the present, especially as we're coming out of this pandemic time and reorienting ourselves around what it means to be the church and what it means to be Methodist, but also I think to give us a vision of the kind of church that we want to be, a church that's focused on holiness of heart and life. No matter what part of the Methodist family you might find yourself in, or even if you are simply curious about Methodism, I think there's a lot to learn here. So before we begin, though, we want to go back a few steps and talk about John Wesley himself. Who was he? Uh, John Wesley was born in 1709, and he lived to be uh, 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 quite an old man, for, especially for the 18th century. He lived till 1791. John Wesley was born into a family of uh, of an Anglican priest named Samuel Wesley. He was one of 19 children that Samuel and Susanna Wesley had, 10 of which lived to adulthood. And so John was kind of almost destined to become an Anglican priest. So was his brother Charles, uh, his younger brother Charles. And John Wesley and his brother Charles both wound up going to Oxford to study for the ministry. They went to Christ Church College there in Oxford, and if you visit there today, there is a portrait of John Wesley in the dining hall, the dining hall famous for being kind of the model for the Harry Potter dining hall, and there's also a plaque in the floor of Christ Church Cathedral marking their ordination there as students at... um, at Christchurch College. I had a chance to study there for a couple weeks during my sabbatical a couple of years ago, which was a powerful experience. John Wesley eventually went on to become a fellow of Lincoln College, uh, one of the teachers there at one of the other colleges there in Oxford. And along with his brother Charles, he founded what was called the Holy Club there in Oxford, where a group of students, a small group of students, uh, centered themselves around a method for spiritual formation in the Christian life. And this holy club made them a little bit weird to the college students of Oxford of their day. Even though many of them were studying for the ministry, these guys tended to take it to an extreme. And so they got a lot of other nicknames, uh, not only the holy club, but also they were called Bible moths, super irrigation men, but the probably the most difficult and straining of those nicknames for this group was that they were called Methodists because they had a method for what they were about. Reading Scripture together, serving the poor, praying together, fasting, doing a lot of serious spiritual discipline— And so that became a a real influence in Wesley's life, along with some other writings that would influence him, which I'll talk about here in a minute. John Wesley, though, even though he was part of this holy club, even though he had studied for the ministry, even though he was ordained, uh, struggled in his own Christian life. And a lot of us can relate to John Wesley. It's one of the reasons I like him so much, is that. Uh, We can relate to that struggle, that sense of kind of going through the dark night of the soul. And Wesley certainly does that. He tries uh, going on a mission trip to the colony of Georgia, leaving England, going to Georgia uh, to preach there to uh, those who are part of that colony, largely a penal colony in uh, that period of time in in the 1730s. Also, a lot of Native Americans there. John Wesley's prim and proper Anglicanism doesn't work very well. He has a failed romance, and he winds up coming home kind of in disgrace, wondering whether he was really a Christian or not. He had had all the learning, all the background, all the discipline, but he had not felt in his heart that he was a Christian. Head and heart were not connected at that point, until a famous incident May 24th, 1738, John Wesley said in his journal, which is extensive, I went to a meeting on Aldersgate Street. He said, I went unwillingly. I don't know if you've ever gone unwillingly to church or to prayer meeting or something like that. Usually that's when God shows up most powerfully. And he said as he heard someone there reading the Luther's, Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed and felt he did trust in Christ for his salvation. And that strangely warmed experience is celebrated in the Methodist tribe as Aldersgate Day, uh, often called Wesley's conversion experience. I'm not sure it's so much conversion as it is really a a filling, uh, a a motivation, a kind of period of time where the fire gets stoked uh, when that happens. I, I often think of... Uh, Jeremiah, when I read John Wesley's uh, description of Aldersgate Day, Jeremiah, of course, talks about having the fire shut up in the bones. And and in effect, that's what happens for John Wesley on May twenty fourth, 1738. He, that fire that's shut up in his bones uh, takes spark and really begins and and sparks the Methodist movement, which of which he becomes really the organizer and founder. Uh, Some would say uh, the control freak of the early Methodist movement. Uh, Wesley's certainly not perfect. And our our purpose here in the podcast is not to deify John Wesley, um, but rather to look at at what he has uh, put forth, because I think it has a lot of implications. And And while the man may be flawed, as all of us are, certainly the movement that he started has a lot to speak into modern Christianity and how people can be transformed. Wesley traveled more than 250,000 miles on horseback. It's estimated that he preached some 400, or not 400,000, but 40,000 sermons during his time. Of course, it may have been that high. Who knows, Uh, 400,000. He was preaching all the time, usually several times a week often outdoors uh, which was unusual for that period of time gathering large crowds uh, there was another evangelist at the time who was a friend of john wesley's also part of the holy club early on george whitfield who was really more well known kind of the billy graham of his day and preached both in england and in, in the colonies here in america but John Wesley had more lasting influence than George Whitfield because not only did Wesley preach, he also organized and developed a system by which people could grow and be challenged and held accountable for being disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's just a brief bio. We'll talk more about some of Wesley's experiences as we go through the podcast. Uh, we'll also bring in some Methodist historians to talk about how What's happening with John Wesley influences his preaching. And we'll talk a lot about uh, his life trajectory and how his learning evolves over a period of time. One of the things I love about John Wesley is that he is always learning, always gathering. He's not coming up with innovation, in effect he is really adding on to his knowledge of the Christian faith. If you think of it kind of like a a drop in a pool and the ripples begin to go outward, uh, he borrows from a lot of different traditions. One biographer of Wesley that I read said that John Wesley's theology was whatever book he had just read. Uh, that seems a little bit harsh. But what Wesley is constantly doing is expanding his learning, which is a, a really— Uh, an example for all of us to to dive into, to be reading and to be expanding our knowledge around the core, kind of like rings on a tree, if you will, incorporating everything that came before it. Now, if we were going to define sort of the distinctiveness of Methodism and what Wesley writes about in his sermons, I take for his definition of a Methodist, which he eventually grudgingly took on that term, even though it was an originally an insult. In the character of a Methodist, which is one of John Wesley's pamphlets to kind of explain who these people are who have evolved out of this process he's put together, he says, A Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him. And that really comes from Romans chapter 5 where Wesley is essentially quoting Paul and saying, this is really the core of what it means to be Methodist. One who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him. A Methodist is all about the love of God. It's all about life transformation. It's all about that Holy Spirit, that indwelling Holy Spirit, enabling that love to go broader and to transform not only the person from the inside out, but also to transform the world. And in that sense, John Wesley is influenced by a number of different people in this theology, most notably the Apostle Paul, of course, who Wesley quotes quite a lot in his sermons. A lot of his sermons are taken from very Pauline texts, and he, he makes sure that he really wants to dive into the, the theology of Paul and the early Christians, what he calls primitive Christianity. But he's also influenced by the Anglicanism of the 17th and 18th century, and particularly three spiritual writers who are very near and dear to him. And you can get copies of these particular books today, even. Uh, Seedbed Publishers now publishes these. But uh, three authors, William Law, who wrote A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, Jeremy Taylor, Holy Living and Holy Dying, and then Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ, which is one of my personal favorites. Uh, there are lots of times when you read Thomas Kempis, and it really does cut you to the heart. Those are three people who Wesley was seriously influenced by. I'm sure down the road we'll devote some episodes to looking at these works in some more detail. But Wesley's also influenced by some Moravians as well, these German pietists like Count Zinzendorf, who is part of the Herrenhut community in Germany? Wesley will wind up visiting there. Herrenhut, known for small group accountability, known for 24 7 prayer opportunities, a very unique and dedicated Christian community there in Germany. And also a man named Peter Berler, who Wesley came to know uh, during his travels and who challenged Wesley to grow and to keep on with his faith, even while he was going through this dark night of the soul, to keep going, to keep moving forward in his faith. So we all have, and we can all think of theological influences we've had on our own life. Wesley certainly had those, both personally and from afar. And he uses those influences as he as he crafts and, and evolves in this kind of standard for what the Methodists are going to preach, what they're going to be about, how they're going to organize, and how they're going to practice their faith. And so Wesley's sermons are a major part of this. And one of the things that struck me when I first became a Methodist was how powerful Wesley's sermons were. And not only that, but that they were using sermons as standards in the first place. I mean, growing up in uh, a much more uh, doctrinal catechism tradition. Uh, we didn't think of sermons so much as we did catechism question and answer. But I think Wesley uses these sermons as a form of practical doctrine. In effect, they become sort of like a a, a shorthand for seminary for Methodist preachers who will go out and spread this word around. John Wesley forms a cadre of lay preachers who are going to ride circuits. They usually have no formal theological education, and so what essentially he gives them here is a seminary in a saddlebag. These preachers rode from place to place. They preached in established preaching houses and in the open air, and Wesley gives them these standard servants. They're not actually preaching these sermons word for word, but rather They're using them as tools for studying theological content and the interpretation of Scripture. So you might picture some of the famous pictures of Methodist circuit riders or of them riding on the horse, kind of dropping the reins, letting the horse go while they read from the saddle. So these sermons become kind of the seminary in a saddlebag, as I said, for the Methodist preachers. They're also used as a measuring rod for evaluating Methodist preaching because if the preachers did not hold to the doctrinal tenets therein, they would be discontinued as preachers. Of course, this is, again, a form of accountability. John Wesley was not, as many people want to paint him, a pluralist who said anything goes theologically. Wesley was very specific about doctrine, very specific about the message that needed to be preached. And so these sermons were held up against the preaching of those preachers, and if they didn't cut it, then they were discontinued. Now, that's the same reason why Methodist preachers today have to take Methodist theology, but we don't hold people to that same standards. I would argue that we should, not that John Wesley is perfect and complete, but rather that we should be preaching these core doctrines as a matter of course within our own sermons and in our own preaching, that uh, we want our lay people, at least I want my lay people, to be able to evaluate my preaching based on their understanding of doctrine. And if I haven't taught them that doctrine, then I'm not doing my job. And if I'm not preaching it, then I'm certainly not doing my job either. And so these sermons were and still are, in effect, a way of preaching practical doctrine. They influenced the moral culture of Methodism. They influenced Methodist thought. Um, They were a challenge to some of the prevailing theological understandings of the day, which had become, from the Church of England, uh, very rote in many ways, and also the the growing Calvinist influence. Uh, And again, throughout this podcast, we're going to talk about Calvinism some. A lot of people want to set up Calvinism and Methodist Arminianism uh, sort of in opposition to one another. I don't think they're in opposition to one another. I have been part of both traditions. I do think they emphasize different things, and it's important to recognize those differences, but I want to make sure that we are not excluding uh, some different interpretations. Wesley certainly has some some serious thoughts, as we will see, about predestination and things like that. But he also said that he was within a hair's breadth of being a Calvinist, which is really about the sovereignty of God. So we'll talk more about that later. But just to know that these sermons were designed for practical use, not simply to be set on the shelf, and it's time for us as Methodists to pull them out again and to look at them deeply and discover who we are, who we're supposed to be, and what kind of doctrine and theology is going to drive us as the people of God. Again, I think these are neglected resources that we have to to dive into in order to understand what real Methodism is about. And I think once you discover that, you're going to be excited to want to get into it even more. Now, what's the content of these sermons? I would say that these sermons are really, at base, a guide to the Christian life. And we can generally divide them into three different types. There are sermons about how to become a Christian, sermons on the order of salvation or the Ordo Salutis, as Wesley called it from the Latin. These are sermons about pravenia, justifying, sanctifying grace, about Christian perfection, um, about the process by which we are drawn toward God, Uh, through God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how to become a Christian is one type. Secondly, how to live as a Christian. This is the practical sense of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Wesley does 13 different discourses on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and he sees that as kind of the central teaching on the way for being a Christian. And he has other sermons on different topics related to that, But diving into those particular discourses is really a deep dive into what it means to be a Christian. I often say that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the constitution for the kingdom of God, has a preamble, the Beatitudes, and then Jesus really lays lays out the law of what it means to be a follower, a citizen of that kingdom. Wesley's going to dive deep into those as well in the Sermon on the Mount and those 13 discourses. And then the third category would be how to deal with the challenges of the Christian life. Sermons like Wandering Thoughts or On the Use of Money or On Satan's Devices, those are sermons that get into some of the practical challenges, recognizing that, that, there, that Christian life is a challenge, that it does require discipline, it does require God's help in order to live it well. And so these three categories are the kinds of sermons that I think speak to us and what we need right now, how we become Christians, how we live as Christians, and how we deal with the challenges of the Christian life. And they reveal also what I think are the three key foci of Methodism, and that's repentance, faith, and holiness. These are what the three words that John Wesley uses. Repentance, of course, being a change of heart and life. Faith, of course, being not simply intellectual assent, but also allegiance to Christ. And then holiness, becoming more Christ-like in character. Renewal in the image of God is really one of the goals of the Methodist idea of, of theology. That it's not simply about getting people into heaven, but rather, in effect, getting heaven into people. That we become more and more like the people God created us to be from the very beginning. And that gets to some of those Wesleyan distinctives. Again, these are distinctives. They're not radically different from other Christian traditions. Wesley was an Anglican his whole life and never renounced being an Anglican. It wasn't until after his death that Methodism separated from... Anglicanism. So Wesley is very much ecumenical on most things. It's simply a matter of emphasis, what kind of flavor we add to the body of Christ, the larger body of Christ. And I would say that there are four things that are really distinctive about the Wesleyan way about Methodism that we will see as we look through these sermons. First is on the emphasis on the movement of grace, that Prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace. Grace offered at God's initiative for our transformation. And that's the second thing, and that is renewal in the image of God. That's the goal of that transformation, that we become more and more like Christ, that we become more and more the image of God we were created to be from the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1. Thirdly, one of the distinctives is the work of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of Methodists who are more charismatic, and there's a sort of a spectrum along that way, but I think no matter where you fall on that spectrum, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential and often neglected. In a lot of Protestant churches, the only time we really talk about the Holy Spirit is on Pentecost, but we're going to talk more about the role of the Holy Spirit, and I think even as you read the Scriptures, like we're doing a series through Luke for Lent, one of the things you're going to see in there is how even Jesus himself is filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us over and over again, so that work of the Holy Spirit becomes vital in the Christian life. And then lastly, probably the most definitive of the distinctives of West, of Wesleyanism is entire sanctification, or what Wesley calls Christian perfection. This is often misunderstood, but what Wesley's going to be talking about here is perfection in love. Again, it's the natural outgrowth. If we become more and more like Christ, we become more and more in the image of God we were created to be, the more we demonstrate the love of Christ for God and for the world. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Christian perfection as we go forward. Of course, theology is not just the Uh, core of Methodism, it's also the basis for the practices of Methodism, the real method in Methodism. So it doesn't really help you to have a lot of great doctrine if you don't actually act on it, if you don't actually embed it in a a sense. And so there was an intentional strategy in early Methodism to embed this and to see real-life transformation into the image of God, to see people become more adept, and more uh, naturally loving God and neighbor. Remember the definition of a Methodist, one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him. And so the methodology of Methodism is designed to deepen that love. The general rules of Methodism, do no harm, do all the good you can, attend to the private and public ordinances of God or the means of grace, those practices, those habits, those holy habits that help us become more and more uh, acclimatized to being the people God created us to be, including works of piety and works of mercy, the public and private ways in which we love God and in our neighbor. And then one of the most distinctive methods in Methodism, of course, was accountable discipleship in small groups and class and band meetings, where Uh, There was an intentional strategy to gather people together for the purpose of mutual support, for confession of sin, for uh, accountability in the means of grace, accountability to the Christian life, to ask the question, how does your soul prosper, or how is it with your soul, and to do that on a regular basis. Again, this is not where discipleship happened, but it was where the early Methodists ensured that it happened. So those methodologies and Methodism are as important, I think, as our doctrinal standards. Wesley's sermons lend themselves to uh, an opportunity for us to check ourselves, an opportunity for us to be in relationship with others as we grow in faith and love and in the Holy Ghost uh, shed abroad in our hearts, uh, given unto us. So reading Wesley's sermons— is a challenge worth undertaking. It's one of the reasons I wanted to put this podcast together, and I've seen how it can work in the lives, particularly of laity, as they learn our doctrine. Um, It's not always easy, at the first, to read Wesley's sermons because preaching in the 18th century was longer and more detailed. Um, Sermons that lasted two hours were not unusual. We'd probably get, uh, in some traditions, we'd get... uh, Uh, Really nailed. If we if we preached for two hours, of course, some of my African American brothers and sisters say, "Well, that's just getting started," you know. But um, but preaching in the 18th century was longer and more detailed. 18th century English can be challenging for modern readers. But I what I've discovered is when you start to read Wesley's sermons directly, the more you do that, the more you begin to pick up the rhythm, and the easier it becomes to to dive into them. So don't let that be intimidating from the beginning. You're also going to notice that Wesley sermons are bathed in Scripture. Usually when we preach, we take a one particular text or two particular texts and we'll expound upon them. But Wesley sermons use multiple texts and quotes woven throughout. Sometimes it's difficult to tell when it's Wesley speaking and when he's quote, quoting Scripture. It's a different way of preaching But it's a way that I think really uh, offers uh, an immersion in scripture as well as doctrine. It's also important, I think, when you read Wesley to make note of words and phrases that need definition or explanation. Sometimes words are used differently in the 18th century than they are today. For example, when Wesley talks about what we call prevenient grace, he actually uses the word preventing grace that has a different, different implication to us. It's, it's almost like it's, we're prevented from seeing it. But Wesley means it in the same way as prevenient. It's, it goes before. So when you come across some of those words that seem to need explanation, make sure you underline those or highlight them, and we'll talk about them more as we go through our journey through Wesley's sermons. Now, we also want to invite you to get a good edition of Wesley's sermons if you're going to read along with us. There are a number out there that are uh, really good. Uh, one of the ones that I recommend is the Sermons of John Wesley, a collection for the Christian journey, edited by Ken Collins and Jason Vickers. Uh, this is a great edition of Wesley Sermons. It's a more modern edition of Wesley Sermons with outlines that can help you kind of orient yourself to the sermon as you read it. But if you don't want to buy a book, you can also find Wesley's Sermons generally online. Uh, through the Wesley Center online, and I'll make sure I put the link to that in the show notes. And these are the 1872 edition of Wesley Sermons, and they are a great opportunity for you to kind of read them online. Also, if you go to seedbed.com, you can hear some of Ken Collins' lecture, lectures on Wesley Sermons that were done at Asbury Theological Seminary, Uh, Simply look up Ken Collins, uh, Wesley Sermons Seedbed, and you'll be able to listen to some of those lectures. I borrow from some of those lectures, uh, admittedly, in preparing my own uh, approach to these sermons. And then there are several other websites that contain the text of Wesley Sermons, even a few that will allow them to be read out loud if you'd like to listen to them uh, before you dive into them a little bit more deeply. So take a look at those that's a great way for you to get started in reading John Wesley's sermons and every Wednesday we're going to present one of these sermons uh, there are uh, 42 or 52 standard sermons of John Wesley depending on which approach that you take and uh, Wesley himself in the 1760 edition of the of his uh, opportunity as a prolific writer and so he puts together a a, a 43 Standard Sermons plus Wandering Thoughts in 1760, and that becomes part of the model deed in 1763. Uh, He publishes these to bring greater order to what was being preached in Methodist preaching houses. And so he viewed these sermons as having particular value in the ongoing life of Methodism, and that's what we're going to look at too. We're going to start with the Standard Sermons, and then we'll add others in as we go through because there are a lot of other writings of John Wesley, pamphlets, uh, journal entries, things like that, that will inform us as well. So I hope that you will be excited about joining me and some of my guests as we dive deep into Wesley's sermons every Wednesday, and hope you'll let others know and that these could become an opportunity for you to grow more deeply, not only as a Methodist, but as a Christian. We're going to begin with uh, the beginning and go back to the very beginning of Genesis and the first sermon we look at, which is going to be the sermon on the image of God. So we'll dive into that one next time. Grab hold of it. Check the show notes. You can contact me with your questions. Uh, My email is pastorbk at tlumc.org. And you can find out more or if you have questions or you want to get some advice on how to read Wesley sermons, feel free to shoot me an email, and we'll be sure to uh, respond as soon as possible to help you get more deeply into these standard sermons of John Wesley. I look forward to seeing you back here next time on Wednesdays with Wesley. Have a great week.